Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. Hope you're doing well. Please like and subscribe and share and click on the notification bell and get this information out in these last few days before Canada's 29 election. This is part three, economy and summary. So let's start with taxation. All right. Canada's tax system is, I'd like to say crazy, but it's actually fairly standard given late democracy. So 40% of Canadian households pay zero taxes towards federally and provincially funded expenses such as education, healthcare, social services, public safety, national defense, even the Canada Revenue Agency itself. So 40% of Canadian households pay zero taxes in this realm. I'd like to say a goose egg, but I guess it's a Canada goose egg, zero. So 20% of households in Canada pay more than 70% of those costs. So naturally, you're going to hear, particularly from the left, oh, we're going to tax the rich. The rich are magical golden egg-bearing geese that you can just pull infinite resources out of. And because the government is willing to borrow money, to sell debt, to print money, to bankrupt the next generation, and to tax the rich, the government can pretend that it's adding all of this massive value to Canadian society, but it is ridiculously lopsided, and this, of course, is what the government does, is it steals from Peter to buy the vote of Paul. So the Fraser Institute's Canadian Tax Simulator 2017 looked at the bottom 40% of Canadian households by income. 40% of the households fell, fell in the 0 to $80,843 income bracket and paid 4.6% of the country's total personal tax. That's close to 81000 dollars uh, a year that's that's some seriously good coin and that's pretty high and yeah they paid 4.6 percent but of course there are federal and provincial refunds that give back all of that tax and in fact give them benefits so it's free stuff on the backs of the harder working to some degree perhaps the luckier although for the most part the people who inherit have capital gains tax rather than income tax but uh this is the reality. It's a massive game of vote buying, and immigration is part of that. So here's a quote from some taxation scenarios. The CRA, Canada Revenue Agency, online tax calculator can help you get a grip of how so many households wind up with a 0% tax bill. To better drive home this point, let's run three, three different scenarios reflecting different income levels through the calculator. It's like the ultimate game show from hell. Scenario one, this hypothetical household has three children aged one, four, and six years, and two parents, with each parent making $22,650 for a total household income of $45,300. Using the Ernst & Young Personal Tax Calculator, this household should pay a total of $4,564 in federal and provincial income tax, which falls to the 20th percentile mark as per the Fraser Institute or Smack in the middle of the bottom 40% in income bracket. In reality, though, this group receives tax-free benefits of $19,321.96 and ends up with net receipts of $14,758 from other taxpayers. And this is how the government buys votes. And this is, in particular, the liberal plan. Scenario number two. This demographic is similar to the first, but with a household income of $60,420, or the 30th percentile. Assuming no deductions, this household should pay $7,596 in income taxes, according to the Ernst & Young calculator, but instead 
receives $13,738.32 in tax-free benefits and ends up with net receipts of a cool $6,142 again from other taxpayers. Scenario 3. This household is similar to the first two, but with a household income of $80,844, which falls in the 40th percentile. Again, assuming no deductibles, this household should pay income tax of $11,690. In reality, it only pays $1,408 after receiving $10,282.44 in tax-free benefits. And this is how democracies collapse. Fall of Rome, people. But with a slight maple tinge. All right, so let's talk about these media bailouts. Full disclosure, they're direct competitors to me, the Canadian mainstream media. And in the past, and probably in the present, they've had some very unkind and frankly false things to say about me. But let's talk about what's going on with media bailouts. So in 2018, Justin Trudeau's government announced that it will be providing more than $600 million over the next five years to bail out the country's, quote, journalism media outlets. At which point, of course, the Canadian media said, are you kidding me? We can't possibly be bought and paid for by the government. How on earth are we supposed to speak truth to power? What do you think we are, some form of prostitutes? Are we court toadies to bend our knee to your endless leftist propaganda? Why, yes, we are. Thank you very much. Really, really appreciate the money. And uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll make sure that all of the scandals involving Justin Trudeau, and there have been quite a few, will almost all be broken by foreign media because the domestic media is now Pravda North. It is contemptible, of course. And in all seriousness, anybody with half a shred of integrity would have bailed out of this uh, quagmire of feeding desperate baby birds, taking the pilfered remnants of taxpayer money from the state. It is contemptible beyond words. Now, the heads of Canada's media organizations promptly bent their bought knees and toasted Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Unifor, which is a national union representing Canadian, yeah, okay, let's say, let's say journalists. I could, I could say other things, but let's keep it family-friendly. They, they were even more ecstatic. They were overjoyed. Unifor was overjoyed that its slogan of resistance, which it calls Conservative Party opposition leader Andrew Scheer's worst nightmare, had swiftly resulted in this massive funding windfalls. You can't believe anything that they say. The mainstream media, I mean, it's 30 pieces of silver to betray the population as a whole. Well, it's like what happened with the environmental industry when they were showered with, with money to never, ever talk about the envir environmental impacts of mass immigration. So taxpayer money was showered on the industry that should be most staunch in remaining steadfastly independent of any form of government backing. And they folded. The resistance folded with absolutely no resistance in a pitiful and contemptible and disgusting and vile and traitorous betrayal of their mandate. It's uh, hideous and rare. And you can't, you can't trust anything that they say because there should be, of course, full disclosure. But on every article to do with anything to do with government, there should be a full disclosure that we are bought and paid for by the government. We have no integrity whatsoever. We are on bended knee, given foot rubs to the elites. Can I have 50 cents now? Would that be all right? Now, I'm different. I, I rely on donations. If you want to help out what it is that I do, I'd really appreciate it. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. But um, yeah, there's the bought and paid for media and then there's the honest media. 
Now, let's start to talk about debt. So if you're my age, your 50s or, or older, you remember back in the day when poor Martin and the liberals fought really hard to slay deficit spending because massive amounts of government taxation was going to pay just the interest on the debt. So back in the day, Chrétien and, and Martin were really harsh on spending, and uh, it was one of the great illustrations that Canada cut its spending massively, particularly in the welfare sphere. Everybody just shrugged and got a job. It's uh, it's really a, a whole punch of nonsense that the whole system's going to collapse if we don't spend as much money. It's all complete nonsense. In fact, people were better off. So in the run-up to the 2015 election, Justin Trudeau was able to overcome 20 years of voter aversion to deficits by promising he would run just three small deficits of just $10 billion a year to stimulate the economy. Just, just a little bit. Just a little bit. These deficits, of course, exploded almost three times higher and lasted much longer than three years. It's, it's so boringly predictable. Trudeau's latest plan is to ramp up spending yet again. Deficits of $27.4 billion in 2020 to 21, $23.7 billion, $21.8 billion, and $21 billion in the following three years. Apparently, the Dauphin Prince Socks, who grew up as a trust fund baby inheriting millions from his family, doesn't seem to have a clear grasp of fiscal limitations. <laughs> I don't know. People should not be in charge of the Treasury unless they grew up dirt poor. I still wouldn't take the job. So Trudeau's plan is to use increased deficits to spend more than $94 billion over the next four years. $94 billion over the next four years. And of course, a good chunk of that is going to immigration, 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 immigration. And these are higher deficits than his own government proposed when their spendthrift budget was tabled just in March. So it's, it's mental. And this is the thing. You know, you could say it's a failure of rationality. It's a failure of understanding uh, moral hazard. It's a failure of understanding economics. But come on, like, without wanting to sound too Hallmark Cardi, this kind of fiscal horror arises out of a lack of love. I mean, it just arises out of a lack of love. I don't know what is going on with Canadian parents, but I have a child. I love my child. I don't want her to be nailed with this kind of debt. So national debts, unfunded liabilities, underfunded pensions, they all simply arise out of a lack of love. What the hell are parents doing? Don't you care for your children? Don't you care that they will at least have the kinds of opportunities that, that you had? I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. So, Justin Trudeau. So outside of prime ministers directly involved in massive wars or major depressions, Justin Trudeau is projected to go down as the biggest debt-accumulating prime minister Canada has ever seen. And you can look at the lines below. This is conservatives versus liberals. Uh, and, of course, the blue are conservatives. And you can see the liberals in the 90s and so on, began to wrestle the deficit down. It went back up, of course, under the progressive conservatives who, well, it's the same thing in the States, uh, social spending goes up. Under the Republicans, because the Republicans aren't in opposition and it's just going completely, uh, it's going completely insane. And this, of course, is exactly what happens in a democracy when people imagine that they can borrow their way into prosperity and print money in their way to prosperity. It's, uh, it's wretched. 
Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, oversaw the largest spending increase of any Canadian prime minister ever, boosting the per person debt by 58.8%, which is uh, kind of important. I mean, if you look at Louis Saint Laurent, he dropped per person debt from 1949 to 1958 by over 34%, despite having two recessions in his time in office. So Wilfred Laurier dropped per person debt, 14.5%, and Jean Chrétien, 13.3%. And, of course, Chrétien was a dietable liberal. So, unfortunately, this is just the general trend. The government doesn't add value to the society. It pretends to do so by uh, borrowing and printing money and creating unfunded liabilities. And, well, everybody acts as if the bill is not going to come due at some point I, I don't know like it's do we just I don't know I don't know what it is like this I guess nobody ever learns this stuff in school so you can see on this graph I won't read out the numbers but Justin Trudeau on the very left here left equaling fiscal hell and the enslavement of our children to foreign banksters and on the right you can see another liberal Chrétien who dropped it 13.3 percent and these uh, this is inflation adjusted debt per person for prime ministers without a world war or big economic downturn. So he's uh, done even better than the guy from 1895 as far as selling Canada off for parts. Now, this is an interesting fact that Canada didn't hit the wretched nature of the U.S. economy and some of the other economies around the West in the global financial crisis of 2008, which had largely been driven by mandates to, for banks to lend money to underqualified buyers for mortgages in particular because they had diversity mandates that they had to um, bring up the numbers of blacks and Hispanics in particular who were buying homes. So they just got rid of lending criteria because they were forced to by the government. They were actually threatened with lawsuits and even prosecution by the DOJ if they didn't get those numbers up. So, yeah, the banks were forced to lend to underqualified people, and then they had to bury the toxicity of those shaky deals uh, in complex financial instruments, which they often sold overseas. And so Canada didn't have, at least in the past, that kind of demographic pressure and constant cries of racism for all disparities in group outcomes. So Canada has been praised for how it survived the global financial crisis of 08. And this is according to Steve Keane, an economist at University College London, Canada and other countries, notably China and Australia, were able to sidestep some of the trouble because even though Canada didn't have the same lending mandates, it still had exposure to the toxicity of the U.S. mortgage system. They were able to sidestep that trouble by inflating their private debt bubbles, which, of course, merely postpones a recession. I mean, it's like saying, well, I, I got fired, but I'm just going to put everything on credit cards and a line of credit, and therefore it's like I still have a job. It's like, nope. You're just making the day of reckoning worse and worse. Now, after the financial crash of 08, I guess 07, 08, U.S. private debt levels fell significantly to about 150% of GDP, down from 170%. And they have yet to return to their pre-recession levels. On the other hand, private debt in Canada has skyrocketed 220% of GDP, up from 150% in 2008. Right? So you understand, the American debt after the crash went down 20%. Canadian debt has gone up 70% um, in, in straight numbers. That is 
That is horrendous. I mean, that is horrendous. Canadians have responded to a decade of low interest rates and stagnant wages by having tough conversations about government spending, unfunded liabilities, massive debt, a welfare state, a completely underfunded healthcare system, and mass immigration that is driving down wages. They have taken to the streets. They have protested. No, they haven't done any of that. It's Canada, sadly, and happily in a way, too. But what have Canadians done after a decade of low interest rates and stagnant wages? Yeah, we've borrowed more. We just just borrow money because, you know, who wants to get called a racist or have tough conversations about government spending in the welfare state? Just borrow money. How you solve all bad public policy decisions, borrow debt, enslave your children. Yeah, it sounds great. Canada's debt service ratio is 24% of GDP. That is 1.6 times the U.S. ratio and nine points higher than the U.K., Thus, nearly a quarter of Canada's GDP is needed to service household and corporate debt. Notably absent from here, of course, government debt. We'll get to that. But a quarter of Canada's GDP is needed to service household and corporate debt. (sighs) Crazy. Crazy stuff. So what's going to happen? Well, as debt levels continue to rise in Canada, at some point the bank's They're not going to be willing or maybe even able to lend to these heavily indebted consumers. Canada will then experience the recession it has been avoiding since 2008, right? There's two consecutive quarters of negative growth. So Canadians borrowed their way out of the last recession, which reduces their ability to sidestep the negative effects of the next recession. Since interest rates are at historic lows, the Bank of Canada has few tools to stimulate demand, right? I mean, if I mean, you could go to negative interest rates like some places in Europe, but that's just paying people to take your money, thus proving that your money is worse than worthless. It actually has negative value, which is true for most fiat currency. Fiat currency is just debt and unfunded obligations. But um, normally, of course, the whole point of lowering interest rates is to stimulate demand. But if interest rates are already crazy low, can't lower them really much further. Now, the housing market is also pretty wild, and we're really talking about housing market in the major metropolitan cities, uh, of course, Montreal and Toronto and Vancouver. And again, this is largely driven by the fact that the vast majority of mass immigrations, uh, mass immigrants pour into these cities, thus driving up the price of housing in the city and driving people out to the suburbs. And it's just this huge ripple effect that, that's going out. And uh, I talked about this uh, with the immigration. It's, it's completely wretched and, and so destructive. Because what happens is, as the housing price goes up enormously, those who are working for a living can't afford to have kids. That's why they call it population replacement. And uh, it's really not, not good at all. So since 2010, Canada's housing index has doubled. And the U.S. is up only 40% in the same time frame. So it's not good. Now, optimists, i.e. government propagandists, i.e. the mainstream media, talk about GDP growth while strenuously avoiding GDP per capita. That is really, really important. GDP growth includes population growth and claims to be inflation adjusted, but the real inflation far surpasses government claims. I mean, come on, you go to the grocery store, it's completely insane. You, you go in with 200 bucks and you leave with minus 200 bucks and missing a kidney. It's crazy. So since the immigration numbers are so massive into Canada, again, it's the largest per capita immigration pretty much in the world, the economy looks like it's growing, even if things are actually getting worse, right? So there's the difference between hitting puberty and getting taller and then just getting a giant tumor. You know, in both instances, you're getting bigger, but one is good and one is 
decidedly bad. So Canada's annualized GDP growth for Q1 2019 was only 0.4%, but population growth over that time was 1.2%. So Canada's economy, in fact, declined by 0.8% on per capita terms, right? And since each of us is, in fact, only one person, it's per capita that really matters. All right. A recent measure of inflation showed it increasing at 2.4%, a big increase to the cost of living. And again, that tends to be more specific around particular items such as uh, oil, uh, gas, and, and groceries are crazy. Now, the U.S. population is growing at 0.7%, while their GDP is growing at 3.1%. So they actually have real growth. Again, absent debt and all of that kind of stuff, but just in terms of these surface numbers. The inflation in the U.S. is currently 2%. So the U.S. has lower population growth, it has higher GDP growth and lower inflation than Canada. And that's enormously significant. And this is sort of important to understand, the buying power of Canadian dollars. If you look at the buying power of $100 in Canada in 2000, it was 19 years ago, uh, it's crazy. It's crazy, literally crazy how much it's changed. Just look at all of this. Current 29 prices are 37.95% higher than the average prices throughout 2000. Current prices in 19 years have gone up close to 40%. The wages have barely kept pace with that. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible, of course. But of course, that's money printing, right? The government loves to make up magic money to pretend again that it's adding value to the society. I mean, I remember when I first came to Canada in 1977, I could buy a candy bar for 10 cents. And my first wage job in Canada at a convenience store was $2.40 an hour. Felt like all the money in the world back then. I guess it was compared to now. And I mean, if you look at 100 years, it's completely mental. $100 in 1919 has the purchasing power of over $1,300 now, right? So this is the buying power of the Canadian dollar over the last 100 years. And as you can see, you get the welfare state. Well, you get women's vote, you get the welfare state, you get socialized medicine, and you can see that uh, just how diluted the money has become. It's, it's uh, absolutely wretched. So let's look at personal finances. This year, the number of Canadians only $200 away from financial bankruptcy rose to 48%. You understand what that means? That in a 21st century economy, with all of the massive productivity improvements that have occurred over the last couple of decades, almost half of Canadians are only $200 away from financial bankruptcy. Right? You understand? You, you get a flat tire. You need some dental work or cleaning, for heaven's sakes. You're broke. It's half the population. Appalling. Appalling. And, and the fact that people are thinking of voting Justin Trudeau back in when this is the situation of Canadian finance. Well, see, the problem is now they're so desperate that they think they need all this government money. I guess maybe that's sort of the point, right? 40% of Canadians say that they will be unable to pay for their living and family expenses over the next year without taking on even more debt. This is a house of cards nonsense economy. It's an illusion economy. It's a bullcrap economy, to put it as nicely as humanly possible. If you can't cover your living and family expenses without going into debt, the economy does not work for you. Why should the economy not work for the people? Well, because the economy is stealing from the rich and the unborn to buy votes from the poor middle class. 
know, it's a devil's bargain. You can get all that money. It's just going to cost you your entire future. The total money owed by Canadians rose 4.3% over the past year to $1.88 trillion. Trillion dollars. $1.88 thousand billion dollars. Are you kidding me? What is wrong with you people? Stop borrowing and demand change. A lot of that debt increase came from young people. The debt of millennials jumped by 12.3% in the past year to a total of $515.9 billion. The millennials' debt is now larger than the baby boomers for the first time. And this is why, among the white population, birth rates are so low. So what's going on with jobs? Let's just look at July. So... Canada's economy lost 24,200 jobs in July, right? This is the second month in a row with job losses. The unemployment rate rose to 5.7%. But these figures are not the whole truth. In July, almost 70,000 private sector jobs were lost, and the net figure was calculated by subtracting the creation of 17,500 public sector jobs and an increase in self-employment of 27,700. Right? So this is, you can't trust these numbers at all. So private sector jobs are the economic engine used to pay for public sector jobs for the most part, right? So if you're destroying almost 70,000 private sector jobs, and then you're saying, well, we created 17,500 new government jobs, and yeah, self-employment went up too, whatever that means, it's not a true or valid statement. It isn't something that cannot continue. I mean, is self-employment even actually a job? I mean, could it be that another 27,700 self-employed people are the people who've lost their jobs and are hoping to just patch together some Franken paycheck somehow? In August, a report claimed that Canada gained 81,000 jobs, but two-thirds of those, or 57,200, were part-time jobs. It's like saying you got married when you're sharing a girlfriend. <laughs> Unfunded liabilities, ugh. I mean, this is the, the hidden fault line of the economics of the West as a whole. So let's just look at the socialist healthcare system in Canada. The unfunded liabilities of this healthcare system were over $537 billion as of 2010. I couldn't find more recent figures. Trust me, they ain't better. Which is close to $16,000 for each Canadian citizen. Not just taxpayers, each Canadian citizen. So the unfunded liabilities close to 10 years ago, just of one government program, were over 33% of Canada's GDP. So imagine, right, 2014, let's look at these numbers. Imagine receiving a bill for almost a quarter million dollars. So this number, quarter million dollars, represents all the liabilities of every Canadian government, federal, provincial, and local, divided by the number of taxpayers, right? So this is how much each, each taxpayer owes of the $4.1 trillion total in direct debt and unfunded liabilities. And this is five years ago. It's much worse now. So it's higher than 243476 This is real stuff, real money, real liabilities that people are going to try and collect out of your children's body parts, it seems. As far as pensions go, I said this is all garbage thing that happens in democracy where politicians don't want to confront government unions and they don't want to raise the pay of government workers because then they have to tax or borrow whatever looks bad. So what they do is they kick the can down the road. I did a, an interview with a guy who was an expert on California's pension scheme, CalPERS, years ago. 
So what they do, the, the politicians just say, well, we're not going to pay you more now because then we'd have to raise taxes or cut spending or whatever, right? But we don't want you to go on strike. So what we're going to do is we're just going to give you way better benefits than retirement plans down the road. So 20 years down the road, the politicians who made those promises are way out of power. And the people who never voted for it or may not even have been born are on the hook for it. It's wretched. It's absolutely vampiric and almost inevitable. So let's go back 22 years. In 97, 83% of government employees had defined benefit pensions. And the private sector only had 23%, right? So defined benefit pensions are... You get paid no matter what. doesn't matter what the stock market does. doesn't matter what the housing market does. It doesn't matter what the bond market does. You get paid no matter what. Well, that's insane, obviously, right? So in 2018, these numbers had shifted. So 80% of government employees had defined benefit pensions, but only 10% of private sector employees. And of course, it's the private sector employees who are going to end up having to foot this bill, right? Defined benefit pensions are very risky, so very few private sector employers offer them. Governments, of course, appease powerful government employee unions, so private sector employees, many of whom get no workplace pension at all, get stuck funding cushy, risky pensions for career government bureaucrats. Total unfunded liabilities for Canadian federal government pensions, this, of course, is payout obligations for which there is no matching asset or investment, stands at a staggering $166 billion. Ignore these numbers at your significant peril. Or maybe you just don't care about your kids. Sorry to be so blunt, but only love can conquer this kind of predation. Canadian household debt grew faster than income in the fourth quarter of 2018. Canadians currently owe about $2.2 trillion in total debt, an increase of almost a trillion dollars in just the last decade. It's so ridiculously unsustainable. That, which mathematically cannot continue, will not continue. As as interest rates rise, the costs of higher debt servicing shave as much as 75 basis points off the Canadian GDP growth of 2019. Canada remains vulnerable in the oil and auto sectors, while particularly with uh, the Alberta government at one point mandating lower oil production. Housing prices in Toronto and Vancouver and a slowing global economy create significant risk in Canada. Don't worry, we can just borrow more. March 2019. Canada is on recession watch after its economy almost stalled at the end of 2018. Under Trudeau, Canada's gross domestic product grew by just 0.1% in the fourth quarter, just 0.4%, of course, annualized. And economic growth hits its slowest in two and a half years. You can, of course, look at the graph below. It's, um, I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible stuff. Consumption spending has grown at the slowest pace in almost four years. Housing investments have fallen by the most in a decade. Business spending dropped significantly for a second straight quarter. Domestic demand has posted its largest decline since 2015. And the only thing that has kept Canada's economy from contracting was a buildup in inventories as companies stockpiled goods, a bad sign for future growth, right? So, you know, if you get a whole bunch of um, food in your basement, well, that means you're not going to the grocery store as much over the next little while. So if you're stockpiling inventories, it means that growth is going to be crippled in the future. So, I mean, it's just in Trudeau. He, he knows Nothing. The government is 
fairly hopelessly corrupt. He is a dilettante. He is a, a, a fool. He is an embarrassment. And uh, let's just do a quick, a quick rundown just, just to, uh, to end things off. And I look forward to your comments below. Please don't forget to, again, like, subscribe, and share. And, and please, please help me out with all of this uh, at freedomain.com forward slash donated. Really, really appreciate it. But uh, let's, uh, and, and the sources for all of this will be below, of course. But let's, let's just do a quick run through of how ridiculous things have been under the liberals. It's a pretty comprehensive list I found that I might as well go through with you just so you get the big picture of Justin Trudeau. Well, he blew the Asia-Pacific deal. He blew the helicopter deal with the Philippines. He blew the pipeline deal. Now he's trying to save himself from that. He blew the deal with China. He blew the deal with Europe. He invited irregular immigrants to swarm into Canada, and now the taxpayer has to foot the bill for that, which is enormous. He alienated the United States enormously due to his hostility towards Donald Trump. And, of course, America is Canada's largest trading partner, so that's stupid. At the G7, Justin Trudeau pledged $400 million to education around the world, along with pledging another $180 million to the Global Partnership for Education in Europe. None of that money is going to be available to fix Canada's rather wretched domestic school problems and massively increased university costs. Justin Trudeau pledged $241 million to family planning around the world, including a $20 million donation to the Bill and Hillary Clinton Foundation. Because, <sighs> you know, it's really, really important to give Canadian money to people who have a lot of integrity. And uh, this, of course, all occurred. All of this massive money hose to people around the world occurred while you told Canadian veterans that they were asking for too much. Justin Trudeau pledged $2.65 billion to climate change at the Commonwealth Leaders Summit. And now he's trying to bully the provinces into new taxes to pay for this pledge. Justin Trudeau pledged $300 million to the Rohingya refugee crisis. But of course, there's quite a refugee crisis occurring in Canada with people flooding into Quebec that you won't really address. Justin Trudeau pledged $125 million to Caribbean reconstruction while Canadian infrastructure is falling apart. Justin Trudeau pledged $650 million to sexual and reproductive health in Haiti and around the globe, wanting safer abortions for women while many women in our own country are left without a single bit of access to a family doctor. Justin Trudeau pledged $50 million to Palestine for flood relief when New Brunswick had some of the worst flooding in decades not too long ago. Justin Trudeau pledged $840 million to Syria for humanitarian assistance when half the native reserves in Canada don't have clean drinking water. Justin Trudeau gave $10.5 million to a convicted, yes, convicted terrorist in a backroom deal that has led to another $30.8 million paid out for three others who say they were wrongfully detained. Justin Trudeau spent $4.5 billion on a 65-year-old pipeline, and now the courts have ruled it shut down. Now it's back on at a delay cost of $250 million. It's a great investment for Canada, apparently. No. And others are using that money to build a pipeline in Texas. Justin Trudeau pressured Josie, Jody Wilson-Raybould repeatedly and inappropriately with several different high-ranking officials to offer SNC-Lavalin 
a deferred prosecution agreement instead of prosecution for repeated and sustained corruption after the former attorney general had determined they were ineligible for such a deal. You lied about the above having ever taken place. Justin Trudeau replaced Canada's old F-18s with Australia's old F-18s. And Justin Trudeau has a rather bizarre love for all things Castro. Justin Trudeau imposed tough regulations and taxes on oil from Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland, but not on oil from Saudi Arabia. Every new project has to undergo undergo strict environmental assessments, oh, except for cement plants in Quebec. Justin Trudeau also said that Canada belongs to Quebec. I guess we can switch from the third person. Justin Trudeau, you said that... uh, A proposed pipeline must consider, quote, the intersection of sex and gender with other identity factors. The hell? You chase foreign companies and their investment capital out of the country like they have TB. You chased our World War I soldiers out of our national anthem, lest we forget. You continually use identity politics and then complain about identity politics. You seem to forget that Alberta was in fact a province. You called small business owners tax cheats. People voiced concern over money spent on illegal immigration, and you called them intolerant racists. We have an equalization program here in Canada, but you give half of it to one province. I'll let you guess which one that is. You spent $8 million on a skating rink, basically a vanity project, when Canada's largest skating rink is a grand total of 500 meters away. You added tens of billions of dollars to the national debt while lying to Canada's face about it. You groped a woman and, when caught, laughed about it and said she experienced it differently. You elbowed a female MP while dragging another MP by the arm in a petulant huff. You renamed fishermen to fisherfolk. I think they show up in Lord of the Rings as well. You used the phrase people kind. You got India, a staggeringly good business deal you got there, Justin. You got India to invest $250 million in Canada, but Canada had to invest $750 million in India first. Good job. You compared returning ISIS terrorists to Italian immigrants and said they will be an extraordinarily powerful voice for Canada. You let terrorists keep their Canadian citizenship. You spent $212,234 on artwork for the cover of the 2017 budget report. You think Canada is 100 years old instead of 150. You spent upwards of $348,000 on food and alcohol in five flights on our government's planes. On your G20 trip to Argentina, you spent $103,000 on food and alcohol alone. You're not fat. You're not drunk all the time. How is that possible? You gave Canadian taxpayers money to Hamas. You took 10 vacations in a single year. You spent a little over $1.5 million on the trip to India that did nothing but worsen ties. Plus, you paid over $17,000 to bring an Indian chef to India to cook an Indian meal for you. And to top it off, you invited a convicted attempted assassin to dinner and posed for pictures with him. And you're the only prime minister ever convicted of ethics violations. Multiple times, in fact. 
You allegedly destroyed the career of one of Canada's honest military leaders to cover up possible massive corruption in shipbuilding contracts. You invited Joshua Boyle, an alleged perpetrator of sexual assault and unlawful confinement, for a photo shoot in the office of the Prime Minister. You threatened to sue the leader of the opposition, then chicken out when you realized that your alleged crimes would be exposed in court. You offer over $600 million in subsidies for failing mainstream media outlets if they can prove to be trustworthy. You put a union who vows to destroy your opposition in charge of selecting these new trusted sources to receive funding. You could school the Russians on election interference. You pay off your friends to engage in election ads for you and get Elections Canada to pay for it. You give massive amounts of money to lob laws for new refrigerators. You made public statements of deep admiration for Chinese communism. You wore ridiculous, preposterous, inappropriate costumes during a state visit to India paid for by Canadians. You repeatedly did blackface when you were damn well old enough and well-educated enough to know better. What sane, moral Canadian could possibly vote for you.